Our meditation today is to try to balance the sense of asking God for guidance and then listening for that guidance in our hearts. It's not possible in such a quick, excuse me, it's not ideal for us to expect that God will answer us immediately. But if we concentrate deeply, of course he can. The guidance that Swami gives us for how to be able to feel what God wants us to do is first to meditate and to draw our energy and focus to the light at the spiritual eye that we see with closed eyes looking outward through the spiritual eye, the point between the eyebrows. And whatever it is we may be contemplating doing, Swamiji says, lift it into that light. Feel exactly as if you were trying to see something and the light was slightly above you and in front of you and you lift that into the light so that you can see it more clearly. So if you have some contemplated action, personal, business, financial, whatever it might be, Draw it to a focus at this point and hold it into that light with great interest so that the facets of it will be revealed. And as you do so, express from your heart your intention. Lord, help me to do your will in this, not my own. Guide me. Enlighten me. Don't so much use your mind to examine it. It's just allow the light to illuminate it so that in a very interested but deeply centered and therefore not not, uh, biased way. Just contemplate this reality in the light. And then attune yourself to the heart, your heart. Hold before the light the alternatives to go forward, to hold back, to commit, to withdraw, whatever is appropriate as a question. And see which of the alternatives brings what response in the heart. God's encouragement is felt as uplifted energy. The divine caution often manifests as a slight nervousness in the heart, feeling of anxiety perhaps, uncertainty. possible to know immediately if our attunement is strong and our detachment is great. But if we are not yet adept, then continue to try. 
with a single decision that you may have to make or with every decision that is significant enough so that we can practice until we become adept at recognizing the encouragement, the caution offered to us by the infinite spirit. Always the true question is not, should I do this or should I do that? But Lord, help me to be expansive in my consciousness. Save me from the contractive impulses of the ego. So the formulation of the question is always the same. Lord, how can I serve you? How can I expand my consciousness? Will this serve you? Will this expand my consciousness? When you ask the right question, you're more likely to get a good answer. Now, do this affirmation with me, please. Of the two choices before me, to move downward in consciousness or upward, I choose with all my heart to rise toward inner joy. Of the two choices before me, to move downward in consciousness or upward, I choose with all my heart to rise toward inner joy. Of the two choices before me, To move downward in consciousness or upward. I choose with all my heart to rise toward inner joy. Om. Peace. Um, We're up to lesson 22, the stages of human evolution. There are 26 lessons in this course. So obviously we've covered a lot of ground. I've developed, I don't really know if it's just um, early onset dementia (laughs) or spirituality sometimes, you know, you can't really quite tell. But I'm so much in the present of whatever's going on that it's sort of stunning to me. Look at that, 21. We must have done a lot of these lessons day by day. I have the evidence on the internet, so I know we've been doing them. I said 21, the stages of human evolution. See, there you have it, early onset. Okay. And perhaps not so early. (laughs) It's even the worst part of it. But we're in Lesson 22, the stages of human evolution. Swamiji is revisiting... 21. (laughs) I've never been very good at details. (laughs) Um, Swamiji is dealing here with a subject that he visits over and over and over again. And he visits it for very good reason which is helping us to understand how to work with people. And everything really about life comes down to, sooner or later, working with people, whether it's our own children, whether it's the people who have authority over us, whether it's people who are our peers, our marriage partner, just everything is about people. 
In fact, and believe me, this is only joking, but oftentimes we talk about how much better communities would, would run if it, there was nobody living in them. If you really just had buildings, you know, and maybe a farm. I mean, of course you have to have people. There's nothing else there but the people. But, of course, all the energy always has to go into the people. In fact, in the early years of Ananda, in the founding of our first community, Ananda Village, back in the late 60s and the 70s, it was a, an astral hour in which the concept of communities really had power. I mean, time has passed now, and now it's history. It's just so amusing. I mean, I know this happens to everyone who lives long enough, that your own life becomes history. Um, but there was something that really happened at that point. Very interestingly, in a, a certain context, Swami Kriyananda mentioned once that, well, in 1948, Master stood at the garden party in Los Angeles. We have Yogananda's quote on our, the bust of Master in our community. You know, go forth, youths must go forth, north, south, east, and west, to cover the world with little colonies based on plain living and high thinking. It was his call for the founding of intentional communities. My words are registered in the ether and they shall move the West. Well, you know, 20 years later, uh, young people who at that time were, many of them in college and so on, this whole extraordinary wave swept across the country for across what people now call the boomers. And there was just this impulse to reinvent society in a completely different way. I mean, now because it's decades ago, it's hard to recapture sort of what the feeling was at that time, but it was extraordinarily powerful and tremendous amount of it focused on this idea that we needed to band together um, groups of people. And there were all these little cooperative ventures springing up all over the place with people going back to the land with either um, intelligent, practical ideas or utterly harebrained ideas, but the point was it was just happening in all directions and it seemingly, quote, came out of nowhere. And Swamiji remarked casually once, well, of course, that was Master's energy. People were catching that wave. And, and the wave of energy that swept through, that turned people in a new direction in the late 60s and in the 70s, that generation has really, to a very large extent, defined our society. People give lots of sociological reasons for it. And it's true, it was a large group and all these different things. But still, it was a very forceful um, result And um, we don't always know the forces that are at play. Um, A thought form gains energy, but where does that thought form come from? Well, I was part of that movement and very quickly found my way to Ananda. I went very much in a straight line to Ananda in the early 70s, 1971 to be exact. And we were building this place from nothing. Now you go to Ananda village, it's a thousand acres, there's some hundreds of people there, many beautiful buildings, there's still, you know, miles to go, but it's compared to what it was when we started, which was just almost nothing, and we lived in the most primitive circumstances without the slightest concern. You know, trailers and teepees and little sheds that were hammered together without plumbing, without electricity. I mean, just, so what? didn't make any difference. And at that time, all over the country there were other communities starting, and from time to time we'd be engaged with um, other fledgling efforts. And so many efforts to make some kind of cooperative living situation for people did not start with people. We will do it according to this particular political system. We'll do it according to this economic system. We'll base it on 
raising goats. We'll base it on, you know, growing barley. We'll base it on being breatharians. We'll base it on being, uh, uh, you know, vegans or whatever it, whatever it was. And then there was some like sort of not, not uh, unimportant, but nonetheless, it would be some kind of ideal. And then we tried to get the people into that ideal. And so we, we always knew from Swamiji's training, but Swamiji especially knew, that it would all come down sooner or later to a matter of people. And whether or not the people were, were satisfied and happy and harmonious, that nothing else would really work. I mean, the solar panels did not have feelings and they were not really the motivating energy for something. It all came down to, to drawing together the human element. And at that time, the, in the community of Ananda, we often came under fire from um, the idealists who ran the community's movements because we were so seemingly unimaginative, as far as they could see, in our approach to the whole thing. Because Swamiji was, was simply not interested in revolutionary systems. He was interested in human consciousness and shifting it. And he, and he just saw no point in creating elaborate other systems, what, what needed to happen was a change in the human heart. And his focus was always on just working with people, inspiring people, um, helping us to learn how to get along with each other, teaching us how to attune ourselves to God, teaching us above all in, in how to overcome the ego, and to find fulfillment in ways that were genuinely enduring. And almost all of those community efforts um, either never got off the ground or burned like a straw fire, like hot for a while and then died down. A few of them planted roots that are deep enough to endure, but the number that came and went is, it was just infinitely greater than the number that endured because sooner or later it all comes down to a matter of people. And what's so astonishing about our educational system th- these days and our, our, just our life training systems, is that almost no energy is given to how to actually get along with people. And in fact, our school systems, <clears throat> almost all our school systems, whether they're public or private, are based on the principles of competition. And you're <clears throat> introduced to everyone as your competition. You go, I mean, I've been told, like at schools like Harvard and, you know, the really prestigious ones, First-year law students at places like that look around. You know, six, you know, only five out of seven are going to make it to graduation. Look around. These are the people you're going to be competing against for the top spots everywhere. I mean, like you're just started out by being sure that you regard yourself as separate from everyone and everybody is vaguely threatening to you. And yes, they, they do now. They put people in little groups for schoolwork and they've sort of gradually begun to understand that maybe... When we grow up, we have to work together, so maybe we should help. But it's all about my excellence and, you know, nothing about really how to work with each other. Now, of course, (laughs) one of the reasons that's true is because people don't know. They just, you know, they don't, very few people have any systematic idea of how to really help and encourage one another. Um, People, you discover ways over time, but when you get out of the academic school system, 
where your your worth is measured according to these, you know, um, static um, memorization and repetition systems, maybe a little bit of creative thought here and there, and you actually get out into the real world, what you're really having to deal with is your own feelings and how those feelings interact with the feelings of others and how to establish yourself in that, yourself in that reality. And it's we're just totally like just tossed off the cliff at that point. Or we move into environments in which we keep up this competitive and find ourselves at the age of 40 or 50, often divorced, often estranged from our own children, um, just nowhere that we really wanted to be. Now, this is not yogic principles. This is not success or happiness according to yogic principles. So what, what Swamiji is wanting us to understand is to really see life, ourselves, our situation, and of course everyone around us in terms of who we really are, where we're really going, and how to get ourselves and as many people around us there as well. Now one of the fundamental principles of human life is that we are here to help one another. And the reason we're here to help one another is not some sentiment or anything like that. It's not just a sentimental idea. The fact of the matter is we are manifestations of one consciousness. And the, the entire intention of human life is to break down this limited sense of personal identity, this isolation within one ego, and literally to realize ourselves as one with all of creation. I've often commented through the years, and I see it again and again whenever I'm in the company of Swami Kriyananda, who is, of course, the founder of Ananda and the, the representative of Yogananda's teachings who has manifested in his own, own life the potential of self-realization. And so many times through the years, I have been very impressed with, with what appears to me to be his wonderful attitude his ability to be kind, his respect for others, you know, just all these different ways in which he behaves in the way I wish I strive and try to discipline myself to behave. But again and again, he's revealed to me in one way or another that whereas I might find within myself conflicting impulses and I can choose the right one and focus myself toward the right response, his consciousness has evolved to the point where there are no conflicting um, points of view. That the identity of the limited self has been so beautifully dissolved that when he looks out at the world, all he sees is the presence of the infinite. When he looks at himself insofar as he exists, all he sees is the presence of the infinite. He read to us recently... He woke up in the night, he was in a hotel room, and he woke up in the middle of the night with this uh, beautiful revelation, and he, he, he wanted to write it down. And there wasn't a scrap of paper in the entire hotel room, and the only paper was the little circular coaster under the, the glass. So he wrote this whole thought down in a little circle on this tiny little um, coaster, you know, so we sort of have that as a little remnant. But but essentially what he said was, and I can't unfortunately repeat it as succinctly and as beautifully as he did, but this was the meaning. When one realizes oneself 
as bliss. One realizes also that all of creation is bliss and that all conscious, all sentient beings, all human beings, all, all conscious, all of creation is a manifestation of that bliss. And when you look at other people, all you see is that bliss. And so you can't help but love them. Isn't that just such a sweet and simple way to put it? Think how hard we discipline ourselves to like people that we don't really like. You know. But what are we we're doing? We're just projecting out onto others our own um, limitations, the inclination to judge actions or qualities in others. It's a very interesting practice to see it. Uh, we become uncomfortable when we see mirrored back to us qualities we're trying to overcome in ourselves. And the, the, the logic of it that has always made the most sense to me is I wish to expunge that quality in myself so it makes me very nervous to see it in you. And so my tendency then is to try to expunge it in you because the hope is that if I can eliminate it from my view, then somehow it will cease to exist in me. And so it's a very interesting learning to see what you react to in others. In fact, um, her name escapes me right now, but there's a woman who's doing very good work. Byron, Katie, Byron Katie. And I, I know very little about her, but I've been impressed with the little I've read of what she does. But her method, as it has been described to me and as I've read it, is a really simple one. Whatever you say about others then you just change the pronoun and say it about yourself. Not, you know, like, oh, well, that's how I'm going to overcome it, but because whatever you're saying about others, you're really saying it about yourself. And you can often tell yourself what you're really thinking by just changing the pronouns. Because if you, especially when you're, you know, well, even when you're telling beautiful stories, because it takes one to know one. <laughs> even, <laughs> even to uh, Swami Kriyananda once when he complimented Ananda, when he when he said something in gratitude and in praise of Ananda Ma, great woman saint of India, she died in 1982. But Swami Kriyananda spent a great deal of time with her, at, uh, from 58 to 62 when he lived there, and he said something about her extraordinary goodness, and she said simply, "Well, it takes goodness to see goodness." If we don't have it in us, we don't see it in others, which is why selfish people always think that everybody's selfish. It's sort of a joke. It has been a joke for a long time in Swami Kriyananda's life. As he puts it, you know, people just assume he has a nefarious motive. Many people do. Because they literally can't imagine that he would be doing things for pure altruism. And he's been accused, you know, of salting money away in a Swiss bank account or something like that. In fact, it got to be kind of a joke his parents, when his parents died, he spent, let's see, was it, I think it was from his inheritance. He spent most of the money to build a building at Ananda Village for everyone. But he took $10,000 at that time and he put it into a bank account in Switzerland so that when he went to Europe, he wouldn't have to be dependent on the devotees there to um, support him. And he gradually spent that money down and then realized he just didn't want to do that anymore, so he closed the bank account. Somewhere in that process, the bank account was reported in lira. This was before the euro. And some person who did not have a fond thought for Swamiji saw the total of the bank account in lira 
And of course it was, you know, so much more enormous because the lira was worth, what, a penny or something like that? I don't know. So this, this sort of rumor went around that Swamiji had this huge bank account in Switzerland. I mean, it was a black humor kind of joke. But it's just, we see in others what's in ourselves. It, it's, people literally can't imagine that in all these uh, 40 years of building Ananda that Swamiji hasn't made money off of it. Everybody makes money off what they do. It's hard to imagine that he just gives it back and ends up with nothing, period. But that's how we live. Now, um, let, me, let me find the thought that I was saying there. So that's the first element about our relationships with people, is that it's a teaching zone for us. You know, it's, it's the place in which we really find out about who and what we are. Now, what he's encouraging us in the, in the principles of material and personal success is, oh, I, well, I, know, I know where I started with this. I was starting with this by saying, you know, this, this need to help others is, is not merely sentimental. It's the direct expression of our true nature and the gradual fulfillment of that nature. And if we're going to talk about success and happiness through yogic principles, even though um, we're talking here specifically about manifesting material success, what we're really talking about is manifesting that which will give us fulfillment. There's no point in the context of this to teach people how to have something that we know is not going to make them happy in the end. It's not that we can't manifest material well-being. It's a very important thing to learn how to do. Because being able to concentrate in direct energy, um, the ability to manifest what we wish to achieve, and material success is certainly one very valid objective in life, and success, material success can, can exist on many levels. Merely to have what you need when you need it is success. You don't have to be able to have a great deal more than that to be a success. Um, but what we want to do is we want to have our short-term objective, and I would say the, the objective of one incarnation is a short-term objective, we want it to also lead to our long-term objective. And we want it to lead to a kind of fulfillment that doesn't go away. You know, even financial fulfillment, when you die, it's over. That's all there is to it. You know, there was a... a Somebody told me that there was an insurance company set up in England in which you could will your money to yourself in your next lifetime. (laughs) It was actually, I think it was a serious effort whether they ever stayed in business, I don't know. And then in some way or another you would set up certain like criteria and then if you could come back and then you could identify it, then you could have your money. I thought it was just a marvelous idea. Maybe it's an apocryphal story, but nonetheless, it's really just absolutely great. The, uh, there was another joke that I was remembering where a man who was very attached to his money, um, he was dying and he asked all the people around him to, you know, he, he wasn't sure what was going to happen on the afterlife and he didn't want to get stuck without money. So he really asked them to put into his coffin, you know, like $25,000 each you know, put $25,000 into his coffin so that he would have the money he needed. And his, his friends that he asked were all a little flummoxed. They didn't quite know what to do, but in the end, finally, they said, all right. You know, I mean, it's... So, you know, they 
three of them put the money in, and then when they were all, and then all four of them were together, each one put something in. They're all four together, and they were sort of comparing notes about what they'd done. The money had been buried, and the fourth man yelled. They turned to him, well, you know, did you do what he asked? Sure, he said, I gave him my personal check. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of thoughts that we have. But what we really have, because everything slips away, is we have our consciousness. And the the real goal of life is to become one with everything. And, And insofar as we hold ourselves back, from all sentient beings, we hold ourselves back from ourselves. We limit our identification. That's um, the, the prayer of the Ananda Sangha is so sweet. May the divine light awaken and purify my heart and bring enlightenment to all beings. And in our festival of light, you know, which we do every Sunday, we have the, the part where we start talking, we, we, we have the allegory of the little bird and how he goes through all these stages of personal increased personal self-awareness and he represents our own soul's evolution and and the afternoon of this bird one day in the life of this bird represents eons of our time and there's four stages and we get to the point where we talk about the stage of the consciousness of a master greater can no love be than this from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God willingly to embrace limitation pain and death for the salvation of mankind Such ever has been the sacrifice of the great masters for the world. It's just a beautiful statement. And so you read that and you think, wow, these fully evolved beings who are infinitely free are born into this world for one purpose only, which is to help us to understand. The festival says, ever and again, through your awakened sons, the answer comes. But the next paragraph after what I recited first there, is that says, here then is the fourth and last stage of the soul's long journey through time and space. And that means that all of us have to reach the point where our only concern is for the sake of others, where we're just not really, we, we don't have sufficient limited self-identity to in any way feel the need to specially protect that, but instead we're able to just literally live for the well-being of all. And, of course, we have to practice to get there. We have to really put ourselves on the line. And this is why all true spiritual teachings involve compassion, sympathy, generosity, on all levels of heart, of spirit, of material goods. You know, our whole sangha is uh, manifested because of the financial support of the people who draw inspiration from it. It's, it's an amazing manifestation. It We don't have any other business. We don't have any investments. We don't have an endowment fund. We don't have a wealthy patron. We just have everybody who comes feels that it's important enough to keep it going. And they take responsibility. This is why, and I won't won't really go into it at length because you can listen to about 40 other times when I speak of it, when I talk about tithing, where a person takes um, the concept of earning money and unites it with a sense of spiritual responsibility from their, for their source of inspiration. Tithing is to give 10% of everything that you earn to the source of your spiritual inspiration. And everybody gets really tense about this, or if I would put, phrase it differently, too many people get really tense about this, not understanding 
that if one unites one's life in a sense of service to the divine source of your inspiration, then everything in your life goes from the right angle. Instead, we have this strange idea that the more we cling, somehow the more we'll have. But it's a complete um, opposite to the truth. So this fourth and last stage in which we are fearless and unconcerned about ourself because where is the edge of self? This is where I watch in Swami Kriyananda, he doesn't have to try, there just simply is no edge to his self. It's where other people see their body or their self-interest or their egoic preference as the edge of themselves. He has no edge. In fact, over the years as I've reflected and tried to refine, even just from my own understanding, because as I wrote in the book that I wrote about Swami Kriyananda, I um, became committed to, um, to him in about 15 seconds the first time I saw him. And 40 years later, it's proven to have not been a foolish or an impulsive idea. At the time, it it was so unmistakable to me that there was... I mean, it never occurred to me to question it. It was just a fact. I didn't even think of it as an unusual fact. It was just a fact. There it was. That's what I was looking for, and I found it. And I've often thought to myself, what did I see? Because I'm, I'm, I was not then and I'm not now given to anything particularly interesting happen. I'm just a very um, feet-on-the-ground kind of person. But what I realized is when he walked into that room, there was no edge to his consciousness. I couldn't have articulated it at the time, but everybody has edges to their consciousness. I don't mean hard edges. I just mean boundaries. You know, some people have big auras, some people have very contracted auras, but everybody has an aura, and it just sort of ends at a certain point. But when Swami walked into the room, and I can still see exactly what it was, there was just no edge. It just went out as, as big as the room and out beyond the walls. And so what, what walked into the room was something I had never seen before. But I, by the grace of God, immediately knew that what was in front of me, because I knew a little bit about these teachings, was exactly what I was trying to become. Because by then I knew, I knew in myself, almost to an articulated point, but not quite, that I was suffocating from a sense of confinement. Just I felt so confined. And I had thought that that confinement was in some way physical or emotional, but I had gradually come to understand. It was just the confinement of my own consciousness. It was just banging against the walls of my own self-definition. And it was so small compared to some intuitive longing for where I knew my true home was. And so when I saw in front of me what I, what I perceived to be someone who'd made it, <laughs> and as I, in my heart, the way it said was, he has what I want, I just immediately went, and I've never looked back. I'm telling that story about Swamiji is essentially talking about the end of the journey. But the other side of it, and coming back to Lesson 21 here, is that 
the bigger issue and the issue that I faced when I met him that he solved was that's great, but here am I and how do I get there? And it's one thing to have sort of huge affirmations dropped on you and to sort of try to say, I love everyone, I'm one with the infinite, God is manifested, everything is perfect, I live in, with perfect. And it's another thing to just get up in the morning and know what to do. And in fact, my own personal um, articulation of my dilemma was that I just simply did not know which way was forward. Because there's so many conflicting impulses within us. We can say, follow your own guidance. Even to, today in our meditation, we're like trying to tune in to our own intuition. But there's so many conflicting inner voices. How do we know? And it's not that simple to tell which way is spiritual because it really depends on our own evolution. So this comes back to what this lesson is about, which is there are certain identifiable stages of the evolution of consciousness in in a human being. And at at certain points of evolution, we manifest in a certain way. And when we are manifesting it that way, this way is forward. Because if we think of this as expanding, now we tend to think of it as linear. People tend to think of spiritual development as linear. You start here and you get there. We tend to think of human history as we start there and we get here. The fact of our human consciousness really is about it's more like a circle, and we're all trying to move toward the center of that circle. And sometimes, depending on where you are, you know that you're moving in exactly opposite directions because it depends on how you're off from the center. There's a story told about disciples of Sri Ramakrishna. And Ramakrishna was a great avatar. He lived in India in the 1800s. He lived outside the city of Calcutta. Sometimes people would come to see him by taking a boat down the river there. And this uh, one man came across on the boat and Ramakrishna was controversial because he was a very colorful character and some people thought he was a saint and other people thought he was a fake or, or a madman. So he was coming, one man was coming across on the, um, the, the boat and this man had a very fiery temperament and somebody started saying something insulting towards Sri Ramakrishna And this man became enraged about how dare you insult this great man who is my guru. And it was a a relatively small ferry and the man began to rock the boat and he said, I'll sink this boat and drown us all if you don't take back your insulting words. And of course the people became quite alarmed and they apologized for everything and the man allowed the boat to land safely. And when he got there, Ramakrishna was standing on the bank and he greeted him and he said of all things he said paying so much attention to the words of fools you frightened everyone on that boat like that and there was another disciple who was also perhaps coming over on the boat I'm not exactly sure but he heard insulting words spoken toward his guru and he just quietly was peaceful in himself and decided you know it doesn't matter what they say I know what is true and also then Ramakrishna meets him when he arrives and he said, imagine, you just let people say anything and you don't defend me at all. Don't you care about who I am? And of course, it just depended on who each one was. One man needed the courage to stand up for his convictions. Another needed to just cool off and just let things go by and not always be trying. So it just depends on where you are in relation to the center, what's actually true. Now, 
as Swamiji tells us in this lesson and has told us in this course earlier and in other things that we've talked about, the human evolution follows through certain stages when, when the ego begins to move into human form. I mean, the, the whole cycle of reincarnation, which as Swamiji writes here, you don't have to accept reincarnation to accept the system. It will just make a lot more sense if you do. And, but the whole way the ancient Indian scriptures speak of it is that um, the soul is manifested, we are manifested in, in individual form and we gradually evolve through the level of the, actually through the crystals, through the plants, through the animals. I mean, it's just that it's impossible to put the mind around how it really is. It is a very touching story about Master, about Yogananda, just before Swami Kriyananda came to him. Swami came to him in 1948, in September, in August of 1948. Uh, Master had what he called later his great samadhi, and for three days he was in this state, in, in a, an apparent state of cosmic consciousness. He was always in a state of complete God-realization, but often he just lived in a more sort of recognizably human way. But for these three days he, he, he was um, different. And during that... He, he was with Divine Mother, and as they described it afterwards, he actually spoke with her voice. He had a two-way conversation, and he articulated both sides of it. But one thing he said, and who can fathom, and Leela is the only word for it, Leela means divine play. Who can fathom the Leela of a master? Because such a soul is born free. There's no limitation to his consciousness, and yet he he or she, it's usually he, plays out these, this drama. So he, he said, Divine Mother took him all over creation and showed him how she does it. And then Yogananda would say things like, oh, so that's how you make it happen. And it was like he was very interested to see how the whole system works. And so somehow, in ways that, I, I mean, I can't, no one can, I can't begin to imagine. You know, what is our individual nature evolves. And, and what we watch, what we call evolution, what people think of it in reverse, is that physical forms are evolving, is actually individual consciousness expanding and manifesting in, in, in sequence the, the material form that allows them to express whatever level of consciousness they have attained. And that's how Swamiji describes, you know, you can be a lizard for a while. I was um, at Ananda Village over the weekend where there's just a whole lot more creatures sort of everywhere. And there was this lizard. And I was sort of walking down the sidewalk and he got himself um, down the the walkway. And he, he got himself sort of in a chase relationship with me. I mean, he felt like I was chasing him, of course, I was, just happened to be there, but his consciousness was as if I was chasing him. So he was trying very hard. And somehow the intensity of that little creature's consciousness and his fat little belly and his quick little legs, just sort of watching. And just I was just thinking to myself, my, 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 what must it be like to be inside that lizard? And simultaneously where I was staying, there was this black cat in, as part of the household was a very good hunter, as it turns out. And um, one morning, early, this lovely black cat, you know, came to, to right in front of the screen door, which was open because it was so hot in the room where I was staying. 
and brought his little dead mouse, her little dead mouse, you know, and then proceeded to sit right on the mat there and crunch up its little body. And, you know, there, there was this whole reality and leave, you know, charming little parts of the mouse that he didn't really want just there. But, you know, there's all, these, all this consciousness. You know, what used to be a mouse and now is a cat and the cat caught the mouse. It's just... And each one of those beings is, you know, a little spark of divinity living out its reality. And the point at which that physical form no longer serves the expansion of that individual consciousness, then that form is shed. Whether it's fed, shed in a car accident, in an atomic bomb, by being eaten by another creature, cancer, whatever, heart attack, you know, whatever level it is, as soon as that material form no longer serves the expansion of consciousness for the individual spark of divinity that's in it, it just sheds it, just as easy as can be. Just exactly as if it was colder this morning and you start out with a sweater, and that at a certain point that sweater doesn't serve you anymore, so you take it off. And, and none of us, I'm sure, if you started out with a sweater and then took it off, had any traumatic relationship to taking off that sweater, did we? And the reason we didn't is because we haven't identified ourselves with that sweater. We always know that that sweater is something that we added on to our own nature. Now, animals like that cat and that mouse, you know, it's uh, those who watch the natural world, uh, biologists and so on, often comment how uh, of the interesting relationship between the predator and prey. And how often once the prey realizes that the predator is going to eat it, it just totally ceases to struggle. It just accepts that this is the end. And even individuals who have the um, psychic ability to communicate with animals, you know, pet psychics and so on, they often tell us that even your beloved pet really doesn't mind at all dying that the anxiety of the pet is entirely and only the perception that its human parents are suffering. But itself doesn't care. Because now it's not because those animals are completely transcended. It's that they haven't yet evolved to the point where they have such intense self-awareness that they have a limited, that they've limited themselves. They're still part of a great movement of energy. And it's very interesting because you see both ends of the spectrum um, look similar. Someone who's completely united with everything has this sense of identity. And the evolving um, consciousness that hasn't yet distinguished itself as an individual also can still be intuitively connected. But to come to the point where we have had the opportunity to have individual self-will and individual self-awareness and then understood and deliberately transcended that, you see, as a much higher level. It's, that is the difference between um, innocent trust and educated trust. You know, you can trust because you're too dumb to know that people will betray you or you can trust because you've learned to trust God behind human actions but can still realistically understood what, what the potential of life is. You see, it's entirely different realities. And there's something touchingly instructive about innocent trust. But it only inspires us 
to, to rediscover it on the other side of life's experience. Okay? Now, let's take a break, then we'll come back. So, given that, given our trying to rise from being a cat, a lizard, or a dead mouse in the mouth of a cat, um, we have to ask ourselves, like, each incarnation, you know, sort of has a, a context. And that context is that we, we start at a certain point, and we start at the point which is the, the, the net collection of everything we've learned up until that point. Just like when a child goes to first grade or to second grade, the way the American school system works, mostly you have that whole summer off and then you come and then you have to start over and you have to find out what you know. How much, how, how, what kind of figures can you add and subtract? How far do you know your multiplication tables? And the theory is that you will build on that. And it's exactly the same in an incarnation. We have a certain understanding of, on this spectrum from having been completely unconscious of our individuality, which is what animals are essentially about. They have a certain awareness of self, but one of the reasons they're not so concerned about death is that they just don't feel themselves to be so separate from creation that the dissolution of that little entity makes them feel annihilated. But as we gradually become more, more aware, the progression of consciousness is that that awareness becomes more and more important to us, and the exploration of it becomes more and more our focus. This is the festival of light that we do every single week. We do that ritual every week, and, and some people say, oh, it gets boring, it gets this and it gets that, but the idea of it is, I mean, not everyone says that, but sometimes people complain about repetition, but the idea of it is that there are very, very important fundamental truths in that that we cannot, um, we can't, that we can't overemphasize them. And I'm coming back to the analogy of the bird, the story of the allegory of the bird in there. The bird is manifested from the infinite and is kicked out of the nest to fly on its own, is, is made into creation. And the bird goes out and, and its purpose is to experience its unity and to emphasize and be an instrument of that awareness to all. But what happens is, is we begin to recognize that we can influence our life experience by our own actions. The way we are made is that we begin to seek more and more of what feels gratifying to us. And the first impulse we have, and we were talking about this last week also in in our lesson, is that we we first seek for, for pleasure, for the pleasure that's created through the fact that we're physical beings. And we, cert, we, we begin to live through the senses. And then we begin to live a little bit for what I can get for myself. It's just this, as we emerge as an individual, we become very enamored of that individuality. Just like little children, you know, can be just very selfish. That's my cookie. I want it. You know, and don't you want to share? No, I don't want to share. I remember a friend of mine trying to help his son who had been... Um, uh, who had, he, the, the boy had gotten into a fight with another child who was a little bit of a bully. And because it was within our community and all the families were known, the father knew that the other child had a difficult situation to deal with. And so he was trying to help his son to be more expansive in his sympathy. And once the moment was appropriate, he said to his son, well, you know so-and-so, 
um, he's a little unhappy because of this and he just wants to be your friend and maybe you could try to be more kind to him. He doesn't have any other friends. And the little boy, his son, was honest enough to say, Daddy, I don't want to be that good. Which is a very simple answer. I'm much happier just being a little mad at him. I don't want to be, forgive him and have to think about his reality too. And so we evolve from this thought. We become aware enough to realize, look, I have a little power here. I have this strange memory, and I do not know really what the context was, but it was, it's, it's a memory from kindergarten in, in, in which some way I got all the other kids, I was pushing around all the other kids, but this is the part I don't understand. Rather than the teacher punishing me, she sort of allowed me to kind of exert my will over all the other children. And I remember this little scene of her asking me, well, who do you want to have sit next to you? And my choosing, who got to sit next to me? Strange memory, and it's always been there, because part of me to this day can't figure out why that teacher treated me like that. Because even at the time, I think I must have known it was terribly the wrong thing. She shouldn't have allowed me to exert my will like that. She should have restrained me rather than encouraging me. But there I was, and I was given this power and position, and and to my everlasting embarrassment, I took it. And I just pushed the other kids around and kind of lorded it over them, because after all, the teacher was allowing me to do it. But I've worried about it ever since, you know? How was I, five years old? Because somewhere in my soul knew it was wrong, Right? Now, in the story of the bird, the bird is supposed to go out and be fruitful in the gifts God has given you and expand and multiply them and what you gather, share with all because you are a part of all that is. But what happens to the bird? The bird, in flight for the first time, gloried in its newfound strength and began to think, how foolish I would be to share what is mine with others. What else is wisdom except to keep what is mine for myself? I absolutely love quoting out of context, and that's my favorite line to quote out of context. What else is wisdom except to keep what is mine for myself? That's what Swami says, of course. But (laughs) it's not, it's a rhetorical question and the answer is wrong. It's not wisdom at all. But that's what happens, we get caught. And then we have to run through the whole cycle of going from innocent wisdom to actual wisdom, which is merely to not have selfish desires because we've never had enough energy to be selfish is not the same as having quested after what we really want and then realizing the folly of it. So then the bird goes through all the hard times. And that's what we're working with. And then the bird comes to the stage which is called the quest, which is just such an interesting word, the quest. Because what the bird then is doing is he doesn't know what's true. But he has gained the, he's suffered enough to know what doesn't work. And he becomes interested in understanding what does. And that's a, an extremely um, fundamental attitude that we all have to have. And, and I, I use that thought in my mind a lot. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I at least need to be at the stage of the quest. If I'm not at the stage of understanding, I have to have a sincere genuine, impersonal interest in finding out what is true. Because you see, so often the ego just wants to prove its own point of view and is not impartially interested in knowing what is actually true. So the bird enters the stage which is called the quest. 
And that's actually the third stage. The first stage is the mission. The second is the selfishness. The revolt is what it's called. Where here's the truth and I just turn against it. And tremendous amount of life, as we know it, it is, and the suffering that we endure is because we're in a state of revolt. Which is this is the pathway to fulfillment, is self-expansion and self-offering. But we don't want to do it. We're just in rebellion against it, just like little children. Like my friend trying to tell his son, why don't you expand your consciousness and try to make a friend out of this boy? I don't want to. You know, I think it'll make me happier not to do that. And we can assert that forever, literally. We can assert that eternally. It will never make it true. Because it will always go against what is our true nature, which is, here then, is the fourth and last stage where we recognize that we are again. We recognize it from experience. I am a part of all that is. Lord, we offer up the little light that is in us into thy infinite light. Make us channels of your perfect love. And we don't offer that out of some abject sense of um, being conquered. We offer that out of victory over ignorance ourself. That's what we want to become. And so this is the, the path to true fulfillment. And interestingly, this is the path, in fact, to success of all kinds. Because this is what puts us in harmony with these great forces. Even when the little bird is in the state of revolt and is getting battered by the wind, the wind says, give yourself into my hands, then I can add my strength to to yours. And what the Festival of Light says, and after a time, I love that little phrase, and after a time, like how long was that time? And then, it, and then Swamiji calls him the tiny rebel. And, and then you have a picture of a bird, but what you also have is how minute this sort of individual ego asserting itself is compared to the infinite reality of things. I uh, have shared with you in other contexts, but it's relevant here, Years ago, a few years ago, we went to India uh, on one of our trips to India, and we went to this place where these two huge rivers converge, and they converge down in this deep canyon. And there's a, a you can walk all the way down to the literally, so you're standing on something that's not dissimilar to this, at the point when the two rivers come together. But you know, it was four times as wide as the width of this temple, and you know the two rivers, and it was just you know, power like you, you can hardly imagine, like the natural world can give you. And because it was India, not America, where they're not terribly afraid of somebody suing you all the time, you could walk right to there, and there was the river. And in fact, there were a couple of submerged steps, and you could step down, you know, and get yourself into the water fairly far, standing on the steps, and then there were chains that you could hold on to, so you wouldn't get swept away. And you could dunk yourself, because it was a holy spot. Fortunately, on that trip, we had Jocelyn Black with us, um, who's an EMT and a firefighter and a big, strong girl. She's probably close to six feet tall. And I mean, I said, Jocelyn, please just get in the water there next to all the people who are going in. <laughs> you know, and she was sort of just making sure that nobody was swept away. But the, um, the, the sense of being a tiny rebel, I don't think was ever more vivid to me 
or certainly it was one of those moments, on two levels. One was, whatever makes me think that I can stand against, I don't just mean the forces of nature, but divine law. You know, I didn't create any of this. And the second reality was, didn't create it, what I mean by that is, we, we have to be on a quest. We have to ask what is happening here. We can't just with our little minds declare what is happening here. And the other part that was so amazing to me was how easily I could have exited my body by just stepping into that water. Just how life could have been snuffed out like that. And how utterly indifferent the river would have been to whether I stepped into it or not. And in a very real sense, I could feel, of course, suicide is, God would have cared if I committed suicide. But how insignificant one little, one little incarnation is. Not an individual spark of the divinity, but one incarnation, just step into the water and it's gone, just like that. I was aware of what the consternation that would create if I did such a thing, and I wasn't tempted, but I was fascinated. You know, and so after a time, the tiny rebel surrenders and just starts asking, how can I cooperate with this force? How can I let the power of the wind be added to mine. And after a time, the tiny rebel surrendered. And this is about the knight's council, actually, because the, the knight says the way the story actually goes. The, the bird surrenders to the wind, and the wind is added to its strength. And then it becomes dark. And then the bird says, how can I fly in this darkness? And the knight whispers, fear not, for peace awaits you in the unknown. And this is also such a beautifully subtle stage of development because what's happening is, well, sure, I'll cooperate as long as I can see where I'm going and as long as I can still have my five-year plan. You know, certainly I'm surrendering to fate and see, and here's my fate. It's like this. As long as I can still know what's happening, as long as my ego knows exactly where we're going, you know, as long as I'm still in charge, in other words. But then night falls. In other words, all of a sudden we can't see. We're in this darkness And what am I supposed to do then? I mean, what am I supposed to do? And the knight says, surrender to me. Peace awaits you in the unknown. And then it says, after a time, the tiny rebel surrendered. And what you're surrendering to is the understanding that there is a power and wisdom greater than what the mind knows right now. Because until you reach that point, you really can't go anywhere. Because otherwise... As uh, one popular writer said, if you fiercely defend your delusions, the prize is you get to keep them. (laughs) It's like nobody's going to take it away from you. If you insist on being ignorant, you get to stay ignorant. Wow, isn't that great? You know, nobody will stop you because we have freedom in our own consciousness. But at a certain point, we have to become genuinely interested in a reality bigger than the one we already know. And in another context, I've talked about this. And at a certain point, we have to call that reality what it is, which is divine. We have to call that reality God, and we have to be unafraid to just state there is a force, and that force is greater than me, and that force is God. And until the ego is willing... And until, on a planetary basis, the, 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 all the egos or more of the egos are willing to just say, you know, wisdom is not just me. 
getting more of what I already know. It's actually realizing that I have to surrender to something greater than myself. And that was standing at the convergence of those rivers. It was just like, what could I ever have been thinking? To even imagine for a moment that what I call my little self could, could, is the power. Now, that's the paradox of it, because in truth we are the power. But by the time we feel the truth of that power, we have also transcended the self, and then the self is no longer grabbing for it. This is where a great deal of um, popular teaching actually breaks down, because they try to do it without God. And if you don't bring God into it, you just keep expanding yourself. There has to be a point in which night descends and you surrender to something bigger than you already know. Because if you can't transcend that small self, this isn't just a lot of super egos. There's something else really massive happening here. There has to be the humility born of suffering. And unfortunately, that seems to be the only way it comes. I keep trying it, and it doesn't work. I keep trying it, and it doesn't work. And then Swami writes in here about how at a certain point in your incarnations, you you have these deep-seated memories of these experiences, even if they're not conscious. They're still just, they've shaped you. And we've created a, a form... Now, the physical body, the human body, from the beginning, and this is what's so interesting, has the capacity to have full perception. The brain is capable of having full perception. But it takes us a long time to learn to use the body. Use the body in the way it's intended. That's the medical mystery of why there's so much unused capacity in us. It's because this form, unlike a lizard body, which doesn't have the capacity to have infinite awareness. Its little brain is really small and all its energy is out the tail, not at the frontal lobe. You know, you see how animals live so much from the lowest chakra, especially animals with tails. Or you see at Ananda village there's wild turkeys. Um, I don't think turkeys are particularly noted for their intelligence. They certainly, with all due respect, look really stupid. And their bodies are just huge like this and their heads are really little. And they just kind of look like that, like they don't really have a lot of brain. I can see why people would shoot them and eat them too, because they have this big delectable middle, and they don't really have a head, they just have this big delectable middle. And the turkey body does not have the capacity to have infinite consciousness. You have to shed the turkey body and get out of it before you can have it. The human body does, but not everybody uses it for that. But, um, so we... uh, go through. Let me just think, I I lost the thread for just a moment. Let me find it. So we keep incarnating in human bodies once we kind of get advanced enough to need one. And then we gradually build up this experience, which is recorded in the chakras, and the chakras are non-physical. They go with us to the astral world, and then they return and manifest the physical body. The chakras are the vehicle in which the karma of incarnations is carried forward. And it becomes an energy pattern. That's what I was saying. So we manifest the body that's going to allow us the opportunity to experience whatever's next. And I don't. And so we choose, or we're, we're magnetized into the right context for whatever it is that we're ready to do. And that doesn't mean that 
you know, the birth family is entirely definitive. The birth family is just the starting place that gives us the right kind of body, the right nationality, the right economic opportunity, whatever it is. You know, it, you sort of play the whole thing out and see how it all works together. The right interests, the right training, the right orientation. That is exactly what we need in order to manifest whatever capacity we have at that point. And then we start building on that. But Swamiji remarks that sort of all of our past learning, you know, just like by the time you get to college, we don't really remember kindergarten. We don't really remember learning our colors. But at some point we had to. And now that we're in college studying fashion design, at some point we learned our colors and we practiced coloring or whatever it is. We don't remember it, but because of that, we are in a certain reality at this point. So we don't remember all those incarnations, but because of them, we are at a certain point. And what happens to us over time is that we've had sufficient, we've, we've tried out all of these alternatives, just like the little bird. The afternoon is like eons of our time. It tried it out, it tried it out, and it learned, just as we've learned. And so we, we come to a certain point where we have a context in which we can then start from where we finished the last time. And often what's built up into that point is a certain understanding. And that understanding is about what causes us pain and what brings us happiness. And I was, I I remember asking Swamiji about this because I was born into what what can only be called fortunate circumstances. You know, good family, um, sufficient income, the kind of opportunities that were what I wanted. But I always had this extraordinary, and I was also born very cheerful. I mean, I was just, you know, one of those happy kind of kids. Um, But I always had a a sort of this sense of the incredible importance of magnetizing happiness and avoiding suffering. And nothing bad ever happened to me. But I'm at Anand, I'm in my mid-twenties, and I said to Swamiji, I've so intensely wanted to avoid suffering, but I've never suffered. And him and he just looked at me like, of course, You've suffered in past lives. Oh, ah, yes, of course. You know, the lesson goes deep. And, and every lesson that we really learn on a deep level and, and really focus on, I remember a friend of mine saying, this was before she even knew about reincarnation in the path, but her, her childhood was more problematic for her. And she remembers being 10 years old and saying to herself, childhood is not all it's cracked up to be. Don't forget just like that. She didn't even know why she was saying it, but she kept saying that to herself. It's not all it's cracked up to me. Don't forget. And, and I often, and have often through this lifetime, and increasingly as I get older, every time I have a, a perception that's, that's relevant to the, to the idea of reincarnating again, you know, age-related delusions, I, I concentrate as hard as I can on bursting that bubble. So even when I'm in a stage of life in which those impulses might be more powerful, some part of me will remember. Because I'm astonished what I didn't know when I was younger that I, is so clear to me now, I would like to not forget. Understand? Okay, now that's all I'll say for tonight, I think we'll spend one more week on this lesson because I think it's really worthwhile to go through what, are, what he calls the stages of evolution. This was all just about the idea of it. So, 
Next week will be lesson 21 again. Okay, see you then. Bless you.